it's hard to be sad in a world where there are apps and podcasts and books upon books upon books about like how to be happier, how to be grateful, how to be and I'm I, those are all wonderful things, but you can't truly be happy and you can't truly be grateful if you're not also given the space to feel the uglier things. And one of those is anger and and one of those is grief and and sadness. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And Caroline, I don't think it's a stretch to say that women's anger is very on trend in the Trump era. I I mean, like our Unladylike theme song says, we've had enough. Yeah, we have. But all this cheerleading for female rage also got us wondering, why aren't we as loud about claiming our sadness space, too? And that's why, Caroline, you talked to two women for this episode who know a thing or three about getting comfortable with those frankly uncomfy feelings, whether we're dealing with them personally or bearing witness to other women's sadness, both of which can be tough to navigate. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy, right? Just ask author and podcast host Nora McInerney. That's the voice that y'all heard at the top of the show. I'm just a person who exists in this weird intersection of sad things and humor, and I've just become kind of a lightning rod for unusual sad stories, even though, I mean, sad stories really are not that unusual at all. Today, Nora's going to share the extraordinary path to that weird intersection and why she's not looking for a happy ending. Then we're heading to the therapist's couch, metaphorically speaking. Has whiteness defined what sadness and depression supposedly look like? Ooh, okay. All right. We're going to go there. (laughs) Yeah, we are. Yeah. So (laughs) Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford founded Therapy for Black Girls. She's going to give us some expert advice on how to deal with sad feels, whether they belong to us or our friends, and help us check some white girl tears privilege. All to find out, if stop telling women to smile has become a sort of feminist slogan, can we start telling women it's okay to be sad? First up, Kristen, I think it's important to note that in this episode, we're going to be talking about sadness. So, you know, feeling down about the normal stuff of life, as opposed to clinical mental health diagnoses like depression. Yes. But, you know, Caroline, I can totally hear folks thinking, like, why do women need sadness permission? Because, you know, typically, girls are more socialized to cry. And I don't know about you, but my teen diaries uh, were practically all sad poetry. Same. but. You know, as soon as we're kicked out into the real world, female sadness is a total liability. If we cry over work, it's a sign that we're too weak to handle our own shit or that we must be on our period or something. If we cry over relationships, we're too high maintenance or just crazy. Meanwhile, you know, boys are often discouraged from crying 
But grown-ass men's tears are arguably seen as humanizing. Yeah, so it's no wonder that when Nora McInerney got up close and personal with tragedy, she did everything she could to hide her feelings. I told everybody in my life that I was fine. Everybody. And I was so obviously not fine, but I'm a really good liar, apparently. Nora's latest memoir, No Happy Endings, comes out March 26th. In it, she tells the story of becoming a young widow, meeting her second husband not long after, and getting pregnant with their child. And as you might imagine, things were emotionally complicated. Here's Nora reading a passage from her book. I'm happy, but I don't have my perfect Hollywood happy ending. Because it isn't always happy, and it isn't the end. This is life after life after life in all of the chaos and contradiction of feelings and doings and beings involved. There will be unimaginable joy and incomprehensible tragedy. There will be endings. But there will be no happy endings. In 2010, Nora met her first big love, Aaron. Less than a year after their first date, He was diagnosed with stage 4 brain cancer. Nora and Aaron decided to get married right away and start a family. And together, they had their son, Ralph. Since they knew Aaron didn't have much time left, Nora and he wanted to try for another baby right away. And Nora got pregnant a second time. But within the first trimester, she miscarried. A week later, her father died. And just a few weeks after that, in the fall of 2014, Nora lost Aaron, too. So that year after Aaron died, I believed it myself. I believed, yes, I am fine. I'm fine. Look at me. Look at me go. I'm starting a podcast. I'm starting a nonprofit. I'm raising my child. I'm traveling. I'm wearing lipstick every day. Like, you won't catch me having a bad day. No, no, no. (laughs) I just didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me, but I did not know how to let people feel with me. You write at one point that you didn't even want to access the sadness, you know, that it was there, you knew it was there, but you didn't have uh, the security clearance for it, you wrote. How and why were you avoiding it? And what was it that finally got you to sort of be like, all right, I got to I got to deal with this? I think there's only so long that you can avoid something of that magnitude. It'll get you. And I truly was afraid of it. And I was afraid of not being okay and that it would make me subpar. Like, the best thing that I could do was to be the best at grief. And the way to be the best at grief was to get through it really quickly and then accomplish a lot of things and have everybody be like, look at her. Look how good she's doing at all this stuff. And also, I didn't have any space to really do that because I had Ralph. And he he needed me, and he needed me to not lose my shit. And that's 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 a really cheap excuse. <laughs> it really is, cause cause I could have gone to therapy earlier. I probably should. I know that I should have, but I thought that if I could just control it, then it wouldn't hurt so much. A year after Aaron's death. Nora met this guy, Matthew, at her friend's house. He was kind and handsome and divorced with two kids of his own. Now, Nora wasn't necessarily looking to date someone new. I mean, you know, she was still grieving Aaron. But her interest was definitely piqued. 
So naturally, she friended Matthew on Facebook and told him to ask her out. So two weeks into dating Matthew, it was Aaron's death anniversary, And I was experiencing those first flutters of really liking someone. And for me, I've always known pretty quickly, not that I love someone already, but that I have the capacity to love this person and this person will be worth it. I could feel that with Matthew. And I could also feel those first few weeks, my body remembering the previous year at that same time and remembering what it felt like to watch Aaron die. And my phone would buzz and it wouldn't be Aaron. It would be Matthew. And I would think for a second, oh God, yes. And so excited. What do I say to this guy? And then, oh God, no, I'm I'm sad. Like, can I be sad and falling in love with this guy? Can I be excited to check my phone and see if this man has texted me and also be laying in bed remembering exactly what it felt like to hold Aaron's hand on the last day of his life? And so both of those things were unfolding inside of me and around me and I was alone in that. The real grief was setting in and I was falling in love. Like, what the, what the heck? Like, I started to feel all of those, those cracks happening. And I started to do really um, cool stuff like inviting him over and then just reading a book of Mary Oliver poetry and crying, which is a real turn on for every man. <laughs> Got to tell you, I'm like, do you want to watch <laughs> me cry for 45 minutes? <laughs> Afterwards, I'll let you play with my hair. End of list. Um, (laughs) It's like really like truly feeling those amazing moments of what it means to like fall in love. You cannot fall in love with somebody without like cracking open those parts of your heart. And so I cracked it open and I let Matthew in and I was like, oh, shit. It's I'm broken. All this I gotta I gotta puke up all this sadness. Oh, they're all mixed together. I am such a <laughs> visual artist with my words. Uh, and Matthew is like standing there, like, sure. What is this? I will help you figure it out. Um, <laughs> this is gross, but I'm into it. <laughs> I think that's that's just love, right? Like this is gross, but I'm into it. It really is. It really is, and. You allow yourself to truly feel one thing, and they're they're all going to come at you. Especially when, about three or so months into her relationship with Matthew, Nora found out, whoops, she was expecting. After losing a husband and a pregnancy only about a year before, from the outside, it looked like Nora was getting it all back. You're supposed to be so joyful, right? And you are, but also... It was more than I than I could handle. I was I was pregnant and I was afraid that people would judge me for that. And also I was afraid that people would think, oh, yeah, okay, new baby, new guy. Like it's all over. My understanding of grief and and sadness really started to crystallize, which is it is not just crying. And and I think in your book you do a really beautiful job of expressing that. That's sort of what the fuckery. And you write, your story is always more than just sad. 
So what are the emotional facets that are in your sadness? Oh, gosh, it's so it changes so much. Uh, okay, it looks like this. Like sometimes, you know, Ralph will be, Ralph is my six-year-old, and he will be so excited about something. And uh, my husband, Matthew, who he calls Maddie Daddy, will be sharing that excitement with him. Like, yes, we put this Lego thing together. And they'll be laughing, and I will be so happy that Ralph has that, and then I'll be so sad that Aaron didn't. I'll be so grateful that Matthew is there and that he loves Ralph, like, truly and well. I just think Aaron would have, Aaron would like this. Aaron sees this somehow, and he's glad that it's this guy. And also, fuck, that's unfair. And I think that's one of like the great things that I've that I've learned and that I I wish I would have known my whole life is that all of these things can be true. And I want my children, all four of them, to know that like our feelings and love and our capacity to love other people is so much bigger than we thought it would be. And it's complicated, and that's okay. <laughs> Like, most good things in life are not simple. So why was the concept of no happy endings important enough to stick in the title? (sighs) To me, a happy ending is right up there with telling somebody that you're so glad that they've moved on. A happy ending seems so neat, and it's so appealing even to me. And I also know that it is impossible. I am happy and I will always, always carry with me Aaron and his love and his death. And so a happy ending really does tell people like, okay, that that thing that happened to you is um, is over and we're done talking about it. Can you give me any examples like real-life examples where you have been made to feel that literally in conversation someone was hoping that you would just move on and have a happy ending already? Oh, I mean, truly. Like, a happy ending is something that people have said to me. Like, oh, goodness. uh, Thank God you met Matthew. Like, what a happy ending. Matthew and I had a baby together. Oh, God, what a happy ending. Like, the, the reality of any blended family is that two other families had to break. And ours broke, our previous families, they broke in different ways. And the aftermath is different. And we are, we're a happy family. And we've been cobbled together from all of these other broken places. But that does not fit on a Christmas card. What fits on a Christmas card is, happy holidays, we're all doing great. I get all these questions last night. Okay, so I do, I, I do some Instagram Q&A sometimes when I'm truly procrastinating. Every, every time I do them, I get questions that are along these lines. My dad died a year ago, and I'm still sad. What's wrong with me? Well, what's wrong with you is your dad fucking died. Like, what do you mean what's wrong with you? Your dad died a year ago. A, a foundational relationship in your life is gone. Yeah, you're sad. Like, but we... We've sort of been conditioned to, to, to feel as though it should be over. Nora's feelings, though, were not over. They were just starting to catch up to her, and she was trying to figure out what would help. 
I mean, what should have helped was just, like, having a baby, right? Like, the baby should have been, like, the big fix. But um, Is that how that it, works? Yeah, that's how it works. Like, they're like, you know what? We'll fix anything. Another human. Add another soul <laughs> to, the, to the equation. Uh, never fails, okay? Never fails. Hmm. If you're sad, put a baby on it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Caroline, if putting a baby on it wasn't a magical fix. What ended up helping Nora help herself? Well, a few things. Like, she starts telling her story in a very public way. But first, she gets her butt to therapy. More on that after the break. What is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh, God, I love picking my nose. I think that's just... <laughs> I love it. I, like, love it so much um, that I'm concerned. It's a habit I'm trying to break because I'm concerned about when I'm older and I don't have, like, my mental faculties. I'm going to be an old lady picking my nose in public, and it won't be, like, charming and quirky. It'll be disgusting. That's probably not even the most unladylike thing about me, but it's a thing. <laughs> We're back with Nora McInerney, nose picker, host of the podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking, and author of her new memoir, No Happy Endings. Now, Caroline, when we left off with Nora, she was pregnant and also kind of unraveling. So how did she deal? Well, Kristen, as you know, on Unladylike, we do love a good BFF story. And so when Nora needed a kick in the pants to get back on that path to health— she got it from her long-distance BFF, Tyler. Tyler's relationship to me has always been, um, he's hes basically me. He has all my good qualities and he has all my bad qualities, but never at the same time. So, uh, so sometimes I think he's the best and sometimes I'm like, God, fuck that guy. <laughs> And, and likewise, he'll be like, get, get the hell out of my life. But um, we've somehow been friends for, for 10 years now. And he was the only person who, when Aaron was diagnosed with a brain tumor, told me it's going to be bad. Like, I don't, I don't care if, it, if they say it's cancerous or not cancerous. Like, this is going to be hard, and I need you to prepare yourself for that. I need you. I'm not going to be the person who tells you everything's okay. It, it might not be. It could very, very easily not be okay. And I really needed to hear that. And after Aaron died, he would call me, he would text me, and he would always say, like, so are you in therapy yet? And I'd be like, no, dummy. Uh, what are they going to tell me, that I'm sad? Boring. And, um, you know, I was just like, who at therapy? No. God, gross. So um, I was wondering if you could read, uh, it's on page 15, mm -hmm. and it starts, I wasn't in therapy. Okay. I was not in therapy. I didn't need therapy. I was fine. Sure, I lost a pregnancy and a parent and a spouse within six weeks of each other. Yes, I had spent three years caring for my husband and was now a widowed mother. Absolutely, those were sad things that happened to me. But could therapy cure sadness? So what did you find out about that question? Um. Yeah, it can't. No, can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it can't cure sadness, but it sure can help you live with it. 
and it can't cure sadness. And of course, that isn't the point. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not cured, and that's okay. I feel so much effing better, I gotta say. Nora was doing all of this work in private, but she had another itch to process her sadness out loud and in public. So she started her podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking. So yeah, we're going to talk about death because it's kind of fresh in my mind, but that's not all we're going to talk about. And I want to be clear, it's not a podcast about me, although I pitched that and they were like, uh, no. This is about all those ugly, awful things that we all have to go through and learning how to talk about them together. The show is full of conversations about how it really feels to go through life's worst-case scenarios. Right away, Nora heard from a ton of people. All kinds of people who had gone through difficult things and just wanted to say it, just wanted to share that piece of themselves with a complete stranger. And I remember responding to a lot of these messages and realizing these people are emailing me. They're emailing a complete stranger about the most traumatic time in their life, not because they're all completely friendless, but because their friends and family don't ask anymore. They don't ask. Mm. They're afraid to ask. Or or they think like, oh, you know, I don't want to remind them as if these people have all, are, all forgotten about, about the thing that, that happened. So... I wanted to make something that didn't brightside these experiences and helped people to not be so quick to try to be fine. In all of the work you've done, you know, whether it's in therapy or just personally embracing sadness and working with it, like, do you feel like there are things that you're able to do when you're sad now? Like, do you feel better equipped, basically? And and how do you handle sadness differently, if at all? I can feel it and not feel so flattened and not feel so down. Like, I, I feel like it's it's like working out. I've just gotten more efficient with it. Like, I can get in my car after this if I need to and, and cry for like th- three minutes tops and just be fine. Like, I'm like an elite athlete in that way. Um, where have you ever been around a person who's like, I haven't cried in eight years, and then they cry, and you're like, what is happening to your body right now? Like, <laughs> basically, every man I've ever met is like, <gasps> like just like hyperventilating. They're sweating. I'm like, what is, are you crying, or is this a heart attack? I'm willing to risk it. Um, so in that way, it's it's definitely prepared me. You know, we hear a lot Uh, especially right now, that women's anger is so powerful and we need to channel it into action. And I'm curious how you feel sadness compares in that regard. Like, do you feel that there is pressure to channel our sadness into something? Yeah, I think everybody wants to see you, like, find the sunny side, get to the silver lining, like, overcome, like pick yourself up. They want to see, you know, your second act. Like, like we just like that. We want that for people. And women's anger is mega powerful. I'm definitely here for the anger. And I don't know, I feel like sadness we've always been taught is weakness. 
if a woman cries, like how much you hate crying at work. I mean, I've, every time I cry at work, I'm like, these are angry tears. FYI, they are very <laughs> know, connected for me. But like we're not we're not supposed to be sad because it's a it's a sign of weakness. You see these things on Instagram that are like, girl, if you're not happy, that's on you. It's like, well, I mean, it, mm. it, is it like it's not all just uh, a personal choice and and personal responsibility and do any of us benefit from a world where we are forcing one another to 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 smile through things yeah and what have you observed would you say about women in particular in this type of conversation the the feeling of like nope got to suck it up like i'm not allowed to be sad i've got to be happy like yeah. what do you see as the as the gender division there i mean I do think that happiness is marketed to women specifically. Like, look at any of the T-shirts the next time you're out shopping. The T-shirts in the girls' section and the women's section are all about good vibes and happiness and all good days. You will not see that shit on a T-shirt in the boys' section or the men's section. No way. Yeah, I think I think we need more Transformers T-shirts. Is that what I hear you saying? Truly, we I just need like, yeah, we just need a, a an incredible Lady Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because that is truly how I feel a lot of the time. Hundred percent. I'm like, you wouldn't like me when I'm eight. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> but Caroline, while I'm totally in favor of a good emotional Hulk out, like letting your sads hang out in public is more socially acceptable for some people than others, which is something that Nora brought up, too. Do you feel like women in particular are allowed to be sad? Like, do we generally have the space and the room and the time to be sad, especially in public? Oh, I mean, there's a couple different levels to this. One, um, I mean, I'm a middle-class white lady, so it's it's definitely more acceptable for me to be sad. And I also had more space for it. Like, I understand that it is a privilege to have the time to grieve is, is a privilege. Nora's right. Being sad and what we think it looks like, even in a therapist's office, is often defined by white feelings. Sad but true. And we'll unpack that privilege with Dr. Joy after the break. Don't go anywhere. I find crying in the shower to be helpful. <laughs> seductive, I think, about, like, the shower. Um, You're already, you know, in the water. You know, you're not expected to be looking your best in the shower. And so there's a comfort, I think, and a vulnerability. So I think there's something about, like, all of those things coming together that make the shower a very safe space for a lot of people to do their crying. Yes. Totally endorse shower crying. (laughs) Meet Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a.k.a. Dr. Joy. She's a licensed psychologist, podcaster, and founder of Therapy for Black Girls based here in Atlanta. She's also created a whole online community called the Yellow Couch Collective, centered around mental health and wellness for Black women and girls. Yeah, and at the beginning of her career, Dr. Joy worked as a therapist in college counseling centers. Now, y'all, it can be hard for anyone to seek therapy— 
But Dr. Joy noticed that black women came in for counseling much less than their fellow students. And this is a trend that extends beyond college campuses as well. Even though black Americans are 20 percent likelier than average to experience mental health problems, only a quarter of them have sought out therapy. And that's compared to 40 percent of white Americans who've gone to a therapist. What do you feel like is the disconnect? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people still, one, don't know what happens when you go to a therapist's office. Um, And a lot of people also think that you do have to be crazy, I'm using air quotes, um, to talk to a therapist. Um, You know, there is a history, I think, in the Black community of families being like, what goes on in our house stays in our house. And so the idea of talking to a stranger about some pretty, you know, private and intimate things would not be okay. Um, I also think because of the history of, like, religion and spirituality in the community, it has often often been seen as um, you're not praying hard enough or that's why you're struggling with depression or anxiety because you don't have a strong enough faith relationship. And so I think for a lot of people, there has just been a disconnect between what family and culture has said versus what a mental health professional could actually provide. Another big challenge, according to the American Psychological Association in 2013, only 5 percent of therapists were Black. That mental health gap is what inspired Dr. Joy to launch Therapy for Black Girls and an online directory that helps Black women find Black therapists. Why is it important to have a therapist who looks like you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the research has been consistent in that the primary marker of whether therapy is going to be effective is the relationship that you actually have with your therapist. And so for a lot of Black women, I think um, combining like the history when we're talking about of like not talking to strangers about your business, um, the stigma related to mental health and just kind of not knowing what therapy is, a lot of Black women have expressed an interest in talking with another Black woman. You know, lots of Black women have also shared like the microaggressions and the, you know, aggressive sometimes experiences they've had with non-Black women therapists. And so if you're already, you know, struggling with a history of trauma or, you know, other kinds of situations, the last thing you want to have to do is like have to go to your therapist and like prove why you're telling the truth or, you know, that kind of thing. Like therapy should not be a hostile environment. It's where you go to kind of take care of yourself and feel nurtured and supported, you know. So because so many people have had those experiences, it did feel necessary for me to come up with a resource that allowed people to connect to Black women therapists. How would you say that processing sadness and going to a therapist looks different for perhaps like Black girls and women versus white girls and women? Mm -hmm. I think that one of the key things that I have noticed is that I think historically Black women have not been afforded Um, the time and opportunity to really be sad. Um, You know, like if you just look at, you know, Black women throughout history, like we were raising other people's children and raising our own children and running the churches and, you know, doing all of these things. And so there really isn't time to be sad. So even if you feel any of that kind of bubbling under the surface, you got to keep moving. And so, you know, I think the opportunity to kind of really check in with yourself and realize like I'm feeling down, that space has just not really been afforded to a lot of Black women and girls historically. Mm -hmm. White women historically have had those opportunities, Um, you know, and when you think about like, I love a good cry, that is not something that is always okay for black women, because a lot of times it's seen as you're being weak, or you couldn't be the strong black woman that people expected you to be. But when you think about white women crying, um, and there has been a lot recently about white women's tears and how those things can be weaponized, um, you know, white women, again, have historically had the space to cry and people will comfort them 
or white women's tears have meant that somebody did something to you and now we have to figure out who did it, like who's the bad guy. Um, You know, so I think that there is very much a white framework for even crying and sadness in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Kristen, we see this over and over again in the news. Black people just going about their day when a white woman gets upset or feels threatened and calls the cops. And when they're inevitably called out, their defensive white women's tears just get centered all over again. Exactly. White privilege prioritizes those tears over black women's sadness, pain, and trauma in general. How does racial trauma fit into sadness? I mean, I know that there's a line between sadness and depression. They're not Mm -hmm. necessarily the same thing. But when you take racial trauma and racism into account, how does that influence and fit into sadness? I think that um, in terms of racial trauma, you you get beyond just the sadness and there's a lot of anxiety related to it. Because how do you know when you're not going to be the next situation where somebody calls the police on you because you did nothing? Um, You know, like even I think about it like just here, like coming here and like being lost in the parking lot and like looking like I'm out of place. Like, okay, who's going to see me here? You know, is do, do friendly people look like they're around? You know, like you, you always have to kind of have that thought in the back of your mind around being aware of your surroundings and, you know, just like a normal experience of getting lost doesn't mean the same things for black people in the country. Well, and that gets to the issue too. So, We know from research that repressing your emotions compounds stress. It compounds risk factors for diseases like heart disease or whatever. But black women have that extra layer already. Right. And so how do those intersect? The the added stress of sexism and racism, Mm -hmm. but then... Suppressing emotions. How do they right. play it's, together? It's very unhealthy. I mean, and when you talk about, you know, it is not okay to kind of be able to to stuff your emotions because you do see this, but where do you go with it, right? And so, you know, while you may be able to have like an outburst at work, that may not be okay for a Black woman. In a lot of cases, it would not be. People are consciously trying to manage the impression that other people get from them, you know, so that they can't really just be their authentic selves. So, I mean, so there's just a lot of, like, guesswork and, like, always in your head trying to maneuver situations um, that Black women have to deal with on top of the, the stuff of, you know, just kind of living in the world. Could you take me back to the angry black woman stereotype because hearing that you would think well how is that connect- that's not connected to sadness that's mm-hmm. anger mm-hmm. but how do you see yeah. that stereotype being connected well, to sadness well i think you know a lot of times anger is a more acceptable like people are typically even though we don't do well well again we don't do well with any emotions but anger i think people are sometimes more comfortable with than even sadness like the whole idea of um you know the sassy black woman and you know that kind of thing like there have been like numerous caricatures of black women that are like that but you don't see a sad black woman like that has never been a stereotype right mm-hmm. um and so i think for a lot of people anger feels like a much more acceptable emotion to embrace. And so that is how you will see sometimes the sadness actually come out. It comes out as an anger kind of thing, as opposed to the like sullen and don't want to leave my bed kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What are the healthiest ways, do you think, to 
express that sadness mm-hmm. that you might be feeling for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. I think making sure that you find a, a person or a community of other people who are okay with it. Um, you know, that's why I tell clients a lot of times um, therapy is great because your your therapist is not necessarily going to rush to fix the sadness. You can actually sit in your sadness. But friends and family don't want to see you be upset. So when you're talking about finding a support person or people, they have to actually be okay with you sitting in the sadness and sitting there with you, mm-hmm. um, even though it may be uncomfortable for them. Um, So I think having a place where you can go with your sadness is really helpful. So how can I, me standing for the general population, Mm -hmm. like if my friend is sad, Uh how can I get over that making me uncomfortable? How can I get over the awkwardness and just show up for that person? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like a a do it afraid kind of thing. You know, so you still might be uncomfortable. So you don't want to necessarily think that you got to do all this work on yourself to show up for your friend because who knows when you're going to get to a place where sadness doesn't make you uncomfortable. Um, But I think it's okay for you to kind of just show up anyway Um, and even show up and say, I'm not quite sure what the right thing is because there is no right thing. I think that's another thing that stops people is that, you know, especially like after there's a loss in the family or something, people don't know what to say or what to do. And the truth is there's nothing you can do or say that's going to minimize somebody's pain from losing someone. But really, your presence is what matters. And so even if you just sit with the person and don't say anything or you, you know, pick up some food and bring it, because the other thing is kind of trying to anticipate what people's needs are going to be, um, because people don't always know what kinds of things they need when they're feeling sad or down. And so um, bringing food, doing laundry, washing dishes, like all of those kind of functional things that people who are sometimes down forget to do or just don't have the energy to do, for you to come over and do something like that could be super meaningful for people. Are there any strategies that you've imparted to some of your Black women clients um, in particular about sadness and embracing sadness? Mm -hmm. I think the thing that's important when I'm working with Black women is to help them recognize like what's really them and what's them having a reaction to like an environment that may not be so good um, because I think there can be the, the the tendency to internalize some of this like the, this is about me um, you know like I keep having trouble in the workplace and is it something that I'm doing and so for me it's also really important to make sure that people realize like okay you're having a reaction to this environment that's really bad you are not the bad thing here um, well thank you so much thank you for having me this I has been it. I was going to say this has been a joy I, people probably say that too so meta it's okay <laughs> well it's been wonderful thank you so much thank for taking you. the time thank you i appreciate it <laughs> well so Kristen, what do you think is it time to let women be sad yes and i think it's a permission though that we have to first give to ourselves Ooh, for sure because listening to your conversations with nora and dr joy really has me doing some deep reflection truly on how much more comfortable I am being angry because that's something, quote-unquote, productive, Mm -hmm. you know? Whereas I am so uncomfortable sitting in my sadness and accepting my sadness. So um, while, yeah, let's let's encourage each other to feel our sad feels, I think it's also permission we've got to give to ourselves. Yeah, I'm actively working on it in therapy. And you would think that a safe space like a therapist's office and her cushy couch would give me permission to be sad. But I have to force myself to stop being angry and or deflecting with jokes mm. to actually allow myself to get sad and, yes, cry in her presence. 
Caroline, I need to get my own butt back in therapy. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just going to keep re-listening to, to your <laughs> conversations with Nora and Dr. Joy. And if y'all liked our conversations with Dr. Joy, don't forget to check out both her website and her podcast, Therapy for Black Girls. And as two white feminists trying to do better, highly, highly recommend fellow white feminists listen to Therapy for Black Girls because Dr. Joy really unpacks so many elements of race, class, and gender within um, our communities and mental health. And so it's just a vital resource for everybody. And don't forget, Nora McInerney's new memoir is out March 26th. And in the meantime, if you've lost your person, you can look up the Hot Widows Club, a group she started with her best widow friend, Mo. And now we want to hear from y'all. Does the idea of sitting in your sadness give you hives like it does me? How do you handle it when friends are grieving or just down in the dumps? Email us at hello at unladylike.co and hit us up on all the socials at unladylike media. And you can join the conversation over at our new Facebook group. You can also check out all of our sources and resources on our site, unladylikemedia.co. While you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter full of actually good news about women in the world. You can also grab our book on the site. It's called Unladylike, A Field Guide to Smashing the Patriarchy and Claiming Your Space. We tackle gender and mental health and stereotypes like the angry black woman. And y'all, if you can't get enough of Caroline and me, check us out on the latest episode of Household Name. It's a podcast about the brands you know, but the stories you don't. And we talked to them all about Gillette and the very first razor marketed toward women. Find it in your favorite podcast app by searching for household name. The episode is called, wait for it, The Best a Woman Can Gillette. Such a good pun. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. And Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett. Special thanks to American Public Media and Minnesota Public Radio. We are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Urban. Next week, our guests are getting brutally honest. So far in the podcast, we've mostly kind of covered, like, within, like, the romantic relationship sphere. Yeah, like, what if my boyfriend is pro-life? What if— And that was a quick one. We were like, get rid of him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then yeah. I was like, what do you want me to say besides dump him? Next question. <laughs> Gabby Dunn and Allison Raskin from the YouTube channel and forthcoming podcast Just Between Us get honest about friendship and each other. Don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. What was it? Was it that I tried to hold the dog outside in the polar vortex and squeeze the pee out of her? Does that? <laughs> was that? Was that a tip? Okay. <laughs> Um. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I could pee with someone holding me either. Let's be. Let's be totally. I real. think I could. Um. But. <laughs> but we're different. We're different people. My dog and I. Stitcher. <laughs> <laughs>